Well, please turn in your Bibles to Jonah chapter 1. Jonah chapter 1 this morning, we'll be reading together verses 4 through 16. So again, we'll be considering the same passage that we looked at last week. So Jonah chapter 1, verses 4 through 16. At the conclusion of this reading, we also will be reading a passage from the New Testament. We will be reading from Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 through 42. Well, please turn your attention to the reading of God's holy and inspired word, Jonah chapter 1, verses 4 through 16. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, And there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was on the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land. But they could not. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. And lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I also will be reading this morning from Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 through 42. So you can either turn there in your Bibles or or listen along. Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 through 42. Hear now the word of our God. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, that is to say Jesus, saying, Teacher, We wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, 
so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the sea. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, depending upon what your interests or hobbies are, you are probably familiar with the greats of a certain field. The greatest athletes or musicians or artists or cooks. And if someone were to tell you that someone greater than Jordan or Bach or Elvis or Da Vinci is here, your eyebrows would raise. And this is sort of what Jesus is doing here in Matthew chapter 12. The phrase, something greater than, fill in the blank, is here, is repeated three times and implied once more. Jesus says earlier in Matthew chapter 12, or he implies earlier in Matthew chapter 12, that some, someone greater than David is here. And who is David? Well, he was the archetypal king of the Old Testament. He also says that someone greater than Solomon is here. And who is Solomon? Well, he was arguably the wisest king in Israel's history. Well, Jesus says earlier that someone greater than the temple is here. Something greater than the temple is here. What was the temple? Well, the temple was where God's presence specially dwelt among his covenant people. It's where God's people's sins were forgiven. And last of all, Jesus says, someone greater than Jonah is here. And Jonah here represents all of the Old Testament prophets. Jesus is saying that when you look at the wisdom literature, when you look at the kings, when you look at the prophets, they all foreshadow Christ who is to come. Now, one 19th century minister told a story that illustrates this point that Jesus is making in Matthew chapter 12 wonderfully. Uh, The story was of an older minister who went to a church service in which a younger, less experienced pastor was preaching. And after the service, this, this younger pastor comes to this older minister and asks this older minister what he thinks of his sermon. And the older minister, quite frankly, said, well, I thought it was a very poor sermon indeed. And the young minister asked, well, why? Did I not explain the text well? Did I not give proper metaphors or applications? And the older minister says, well, no, you did all those things wonderfully. And the younger minister then responds, well, what then, do you like, what then didn't you like about my sermon? And the older minister responds and says, well, there was no Christ in your sermon. To which the younger minister said, well, Christ was not mentioned in the passage that was before me. This then was the anecdote that the older minister gave. He says, Don't you know, young man, that from every town and every village and every little hamlet in England, wherever it may be, there is a road to London. And so from every text in Scripture, there is a road to the metropolis of the Scriptures, that is Christ. And my dear brother, your business is when you get to a text to say, Now what is the road to Christ? The point of this anecdote is that whatever theme, institution, person, or character you are reading about in the Old Testament, 
There is a path from those things to Christ. And so something that we have been considering the last few weeks in this book of Jonah are the paths that lead from Jonah to Christ. We have reflected upon the path of obedience. Jesus is the more obedient prophet of God. Rather than fleeing the commission from Yahweh, Jesus perfectly obeys the commission he received from his father to come and preach the gospel, not just to the Jews, but to the Gentiles. We have considered the path of authoritative speech. Jesus speaks a more authoritative word than the prophet Jonah. Jonah could not command the wind and the waves to do his bidding, but Jesus can. And now this morning, we are going to consider the path of sacrifice. Jesus performs the greater sacrifice. Now, in this passage, we do see Jonah sacrificing himself. He sacrifices himself to the storm for the sake of the other sailors on the boat. So what then makes Jesus' sacrifice greater or superior to Jonah's sacrifice? I'd like us to reflect upon three things. Three things that make Jesus' sacrifice superior to Jonah's sacrifice. Jesus was the greater substitute. Jesus experienced the greater punishment. And last of all, Jesus' sacrifice had the greater effect. We will consider those first two points together. So Jesus was the greater substitute who received the greater punishment. Now, of course, in chapter 1 of Jonah, we see that Jonah flees God's commission. God calls this prophet to go to Nineveh, a Gentile nation, and, and warn them of impending judgment and also remind them of the grace of God. What does Jonah do? Rather than going east, he goes west. He goes to Joppa, which is a small coastal city on the Mediterranean just outside of Palestine. And in Joppa, he receives a ticket to go to Tarshish, which may have been in southwest Spain. And as he gets aboard the ship, God hurls a great wind upon the sea, and this wind creates a storm, which then threatens to break apart the ship. And what does Jonah do? He escapes the situation. He goes down into the bottom of this boat and he starts snoring. He takes a nap. And very quickly, it becomes obvious to everybody on board this ship that Jonah is the one who is responsible for this storm. This is Jonah's storm as a consequence of Jonah's sin. Which is why then in verse 11, the sailors ask Jonah, What shall we do to you, Jonah, that the sea may quiet down for us? What does Jonah say? Well, in verse 12, he says, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. What is Jonah offering to do here? He's offering to sacrifice himself for the sake of these sailors. He's volunteering to perish so that the sailors might live. Now, we might think, well, this... This is a fitting thing to do because Jonah is the one who brought this storm upon the entire ship. But nevertheless, we see Jonah offering himself as a substitutionary sacrifice for the sake of the livelihood of these other sailors who are on the ship with him. Now, these, these ideas of substitutionary sacrifice or, or, and judgment, judgment against sin, are common basic ideas in the Old Testament. Last week I mentioned that 
God oftentimes in the Old Testament used watery judgments to judge people. So boys and girls, how did God judge the world in Noah's day? He used a great flood, didn't he? How did God judge Pharaoh and his army? Through the waters of the Red Sea. And so too, God here is using water to judge Jonah for his sin. In the Old Testament, water was a symbol of chaos and judgment and even wrath. Furthermore, we see that this this idea of of substitutionary sacrifice also was a common, common idea for the Hebrews. The sacrificial animals that were slaughtered in the temple were were those who, who, who died the ritual death of the people. So if you were an Old Testament Israelite and you walked into the courtyard of the temple, you would have witnessed a gruesome sight. You likely would have heard the sound of flies buzzing in your ears. You would have smelled the smell of charred animal flesh in your nostrils. You would have looked upon the splattering of animal blood. And as you witness this gruesome scene, you would have been reminded, especially as you, as you would have smelled the smell of, of animal flesh, that that, that that flesh that you smell should be your flesh. That when you looked upon the splattering of blood, that blood should be your blood. And so these ideas of judgment, these ideas of, of substitution were basic, basic ideas in the Old Testament religion. Therefore, it is these ideas of substitution, of judgment that make up the path, the path from Jonah to Jesus. We see that Jesus himself was the greater substitute. As John says, Jesus is the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world. The author to the Hebrews says that Jesus entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means of blood, of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Jesus is the fulfillment of all those animal substitutes. His death is our death. His life is our life. His actions had consequences for the many. Just as oftentimes parents suffer in and with their children or heroes die for the sake of their country or politicians make decisions for the many, so too Jesus is the substitute and representative of all of God's elect. And as our substitute, we know that Jesus received the greater punishment. Jonah here subjected himself to God's judgment. The storm was God's judgment in consequence of his sin, and therefore we see that Jesus also subjected himself to a greater judgment, a greater punishment. So if you look with me in verse 12, uh, Jonah's response to the sailor's question, he says, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Now this phrase, pick me up, in the original language is just one word. And this one Hebrew word is sometimes used to refer to someone literally being lifted up off the ground. But other times, it's used to refer to the removal of guilt, either by someone bearing the penalty of his or her sin or through sacrifice. Those are the two meanings of of this word. So, for instance, this latter usage of the word is used in Isaiah 53 when Isaiah is speaking about this Messiah, this Christ who is to come, who would bear the sins of many, remove the guilt from the the people of God. And so the author might be making a play on this word 
as Jonah is requesting to literally be lifted up off the ground so he could be hurled into the sea, he also may be requesting to bear the penalty of his sin. Just as Jesus was lifted up physically upon a cross, and in so doing, he bore the guilt of all of God's people. In addition, as I mentioned last week, we see that all of those watery judgments, Noah's flood, the waters of the Red Sea, they find their fulfillment in Jesus' death on the cross. Those judgments were just mere shadowy pictures of Jesus' death. Because on the cross, Jesus didn't merely suffer the pain of physical death. He suffered God's eternal wrath against sin. He suffered hell for all of the sins of God's people. This is precisely why Jesus, to his disciples, refers to his crucifixion as a baptism. He was subjecting himself to the fulfillment of all of those Old Testament watery judgments. And so Jesus is the greater substitute who received the greater punishment. He took the storm of God's wrath for his people. Now, why is this good news for us? Of course, this this may seem basic. This is the gospel message. But why? Why is this good news for us? Well, we oftentimes feel the emotions of guilt and shame. And these subjective emotions do ordinarily accord to a certain extent with objective reality. When we feel the pain of guilt that usually indicates that we have broken God's moral order. We are moral creatures who have God's law written upon our hearts. And thus, when we seek to go against the fabric of God's moral universe, our consciences are going to let us know. This is part of the evidence of us being made in the image of God. And we experience shame when either we do vile things to other people, or we experience other people doing vile vile things against us. This is not how creatures, image bearers of God, are to interact with one another, and thus we feel guilt and shame. And these emotions can, at times, feel like burdens that are too heavy for us to bear. And so what, what will lift these heavy burdens What will ease the the conscience of a guilt-ridden sinner? Well, our world will say that we just need to do better. Our world will say that we need to atone, atone for the guilt of our own sin. The world will say that we actually shouldn't feel that bad about the guilt of our sin because we're actually pretty good people and and we just need to boost our self-esteem. But these solutions are no solutions at all. These solutions are are like telling a terminally ill individual that they just need to imitate a healthy person, thus they will get better. No, the only remedy to lift these burdens, the only remedy to ease the conscience of a guilt-ridden sinner is this message of the cross, that Jesus died for sinners, that Jesus bore God's eternal wrath against sin for you. That Jesus suffered the anguish and torment of hell for you. You know, when God's people are called into worship each and every Lord's Day, they don't need to hear more about the conflicts of this world. They don't need to hear more about the social problems that afflict our present day. You can turn on Fox News or MSNBC or listen to a host of podcasts if you want to hear about that. 
What God's people need when they're called into worship on the Lord's day, when they're called out of this world to ascend the heavenly Mount Zion, God's people need to hear this message. God's people need to be reminded of the politics of another age, the age to come. God's people need a place uh, that they can bring the guilt of their sin and hear the comforting news of God's absolution. Jesus, indeed, is our greater substitute who has experienced a greater punishment. And this is precisely what the church is commissioned to preach and proclaim. The church really is nothing if it is not proclaiming this message. There is no other institution in our world or culture who has been given authority or competency to proclaim this message of salvation, this message which alone is able to motivate a life of good works, and thus it's this message that we need to hear. Well, another description of this path, this path of sacrifice that leads us from Jonah to Jesus, another description of this path that leads from Jonah to Jesus is the theme of effectiveness. Now, notice Jonah's twofold purpose here in verse 12 particularly. Jonah seeks to offer himself as a sacrifice in order to calm the storm and spare the lives of the sailors. We see this in verse 12. He says, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. So Jonah is is seeking to offer himself to, to abate God's judgment and, and preserve the life of these sailors. And we see in verse 15 that his sacrifice seems to have been effective. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Now in verse 16, we see that Jonah may have accomplished more than what he wanted. Uh, we see that these sailors may have even professed saving faith. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Now, in the Old Testament, when the Bible uses the phrase, fear of the Lord, Lord in all caps, it generally is a reference to those who have saving faith. Recognize God as a covenant-keeping God. But when the Old Testament uses the phrase, the fear of God, that usually is a reference to a pagan ruler who doesn't necessarily have saving faith, but recognizes the existence of an external authority outside of himself. And so these sailors likely were professing true faith. And there's irony here. Jesus, I mean, excuse me, Jonah fled from God's call to preach the Ninevites because he didn't want the, this, this pagan Gentile nation to hear about God's grace. But yet, as he fled from God's call, he ends up converting Gentiles nonetheless. And so Jonah's sacrifice was effective, effective in calming the storm and, and preserving the life of these sailors and ultimately bringing them to faith. Now, what was Je- the purpose of Jesus' sacrifice? Why did he come down to this earth and go all the way to the cross and offer himself up? Why did he do this? What was the purpose of his sacrifice. Well, like Jonah, the purpose was to calm the storm of God's wrath and to save a particular people. Just as Jonah's focus was upon the sailors, not 
everybody out there but the sailors. And so too, Jesus came to die for his people, a particular people. So that first purpose is that Jesus came to calm the storm of God's wrath. This is important for us to confess. There are many people today who reject this notion that Jesus went to the cross in order to suffer the wrath of his father. There are those who assert that this is essentially divine cosmic child abuse and gives legitimacy to every abuser out there because as they abuse their victims, they're merely imitating God's abuse of his son. But this is just fanciful. This is is completely unbiblical, as we saw in our declaration of pardon, that Jesus came as our propitiation. And what does propitiation mean? Jesus came as our wrath-absorbing sacrifice. God is a just God, and therefore, if his justice will be maintained, he needs to punish the infractions committed against his holy majesty. And Jesus came as our substitute to bear that penalty. And likewise, we see that Jesus, like Jonah, offered himself for a particular people. Jesus died for his sheep, as he says in John 10. Jesus died for his bride, as Paul says in Ephesians 5. This is good news. This is good news because we can be confident, those of us who believe, we can be confident that what motivated Jesus to go all the way to the cross, what motivated Jesus on the eve of his death when he was sweating blood as he was thinking about suffering the wrath of his father, what motivated Jesus during those times of agony was you, your sins, your weaknesses, your shortcomings. He was motivated to pay the penalty for your sins. Boys and girls, just as, you, just as your parents work so that you can uh, have a, a roof over your head and food to eat and clothes to wear, so too Jesus lived and died and rose again so that you might have a place in heaven with your name on it. So Jesus' sacrifice, his sacrifice was effective, effective in calming the storm of God's wrath and saving a particular people for himself. Well, congregation of Christ, how does one go from Jonah to Jesus? How does one go from the 8th century B.C. to the 5th century A.D.? Well, we are to take the path of sacrifice. And behold how Jesus' sacrifice was more effective since he was a greater substitute who received the greater punishment. Let us pray.